Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. A good sermon teaches truth and points people to Christ, but it also shows the hearers how to live. This week, the gang talks about sermon application. Let's join the conversation as they connect the dots for us. Well, welcome to Mortification Spin Bully Pulpit. The gang's all here, and today we want to discuss a topic that uh, is important but rarely discussed, it seems to me, in the church today, and that is the all-important matter of sermon application. Obviously, every sermon is meant to have a shaping and formative effect upon the Christian character of those listening. But is it enough simply to preach the great indicatives of the gospel, the things that Christ has done, the things that God in Christ has done and will do on our behalf? Or is there also a place for more directive preaching where, if you like, the dots between the indicatives of God's action and the imperatives of what it means to be a Christian need to be connected by the pastor? Todd, your thoughts on that? Well, I I think, you know, it's interesting, you, you mentioned indicatives and imperatives because it wasn't long ago where a, a particular blog post got some uh, some attention because the writer's assertion was that uh, Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan had nothing to do with encouraging us or challenging us to be good neighbors. It was only there to help us see Jesus as the great good neighbor. Now, we would agree that Jesus is uh, the, the ultimate uh, good neighbor, but uh, clearly, Jesus is telling that parable to challenge his hearers um, beyond the question of who's my neighbor to begin asking themselves, am I being a neighbor? There's clearly application intended in that. But but I think the problem is, is that some folks get so excited and, and rightfully excited about a redemptive historical preaching. I remember first learning about that. It's very exciting. But the problem is that sometimes we think, so long as I can show you how this text points to Jesus, then I've done my job. And that makes perhaps for a great lecture, but not necessarily for a great sermon. Yeah, yeah. So you have somebody like Amy Bird or the mad woman in the attic in your congregation. Yes. Clearly a lot of moral, practical moral problems a lot to address of issues, there. A lot of issues, lot of issues there. A lot of insecurities. Do you... Do you you, oh, by the way, I should announce that uh, the Mad Room the Attic's come out as the first member of the trans-allergic community. She actually, she has oh, these man. imaginary allergies. It was a member of my congregation, Bob Andrejcik, uh, coined this term, the trans-allergic community. And we're proud to say that... Oh, sorry, I've given her name away. The Mad Woman in the Attic, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, uh, is, the, is the first member of, of the United States trans-allergic community. Okay. But you have people in your congregation who may not connect the dots between the indicatives and the imperatives. But on the other hand, you also have to avoid legalism. You have to avoid reducing the gospel to the imperatives. Mm -hmm. How do you go about doing that? Now, Amy, you're obviously not a preacher. No. But you listen to preaching week by week. Mm-hmm. I'm not uh, a preacher, but I do listen to preaching. Good, mm-hmm. good. Have you heard it done well? Have you heard it done badly? Could you perhaps give yes, some, some examples? Um, if you're assuming that your congregants can connect all the dots, you're wrong. Hmm. 
They just can't. And you maybe they can connect a couple. Mm-hmm. One thing I really appreciate about my pastor now is I feel like when he is going, when he's preaching, he's also teaching us how to read scripture. Mm-hmm. And so he'll say some things like, you know, here's the main point in this, and he'll, you know, drive it and show it how points to Christ right. does that very well. Yep. But then he'll interject, you know, he doesn't just save the application for the end. Mm-hmm. He'll put some application in there in different parts, and he'll say, now, this is just one application. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't the main thrust of the text. This is one way, you know, he's probably thinking in a shepherding way, right. according to the people that he knows well in his congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it teaches you how to think that way while you're reading. Right. How can this tie in? You know, what can I take from this? Yeah. What is um, God's word then calling us to do after we read it? Because pointing it to Christ is very important. Mm-hmm. But that's Absolutely. the beginning. You know, mm-hmm. we are in Christ. Right. So therefore, we are called out to uh, mm-hmm. live a life of faith and obedience. And we need to yeah. be taught how to do that. Yeah, one of the things that excites me about preaching is that I'm, I'm hoping to be able to um, show the people in my church uh, how practical, if you like, uh, theology is, how practical doctrine is. And, um, and, and so it's necessary to apply it. Now, sometimes that application, depending on the text, may be simply you know, t- pre- preaching a, a doxology. And the application is praise him now, mm-hmm. give thanks to him. But then there's also, obviously, a wealth of applications, no matter where you go um, in the Bible. Love your neighbor more. Mm-hmm. Um, love your wife. Yeah, because one of the criticisms I've heard of, of applicatory preaching is, well, as soon as you apply the text, you're excluding certain members right. of the congregation. Right. You make an application to husbands. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're not a husband, then you're excluded at that point. Right. Well, of course... The Apostle Paul does that all the time. Exactly. But mm-hmm. what Paul does do is make sure that he makes enough applications that pretty much right. everybody is covered at some point. Mm-hmm. And I've got my Bible open here in the first letter of, uh, of John where you know, he writes to little children, he writes to fathers, he writes to young men, mm-hmm. he writes to children. Uh, there's a scattergun approach to, right. to applications there. Mm-hmm. So. My, it's not exactly a caveat, but I would say when you make applications, inevitably you're going to be narrowing the focus of the text somewhat. Sure. And not all applications are going to apply to everybody, but you need to be thinking as a pastor about how does this text apply to this constituency within mm-hmm. the congregation or yeah. that mm-hmm. constituency. And you're also teaching them how to then, when they're reading scripture or listening to a sermon, to be able to make applications and connect Absolutely, the dots yeah. as well. Right. Right. And one of the things we want to do, obviously, is we're not advocating uh, that, that pastors preach in such a way that make people the point of the text. However, you don't correct one error by introducing another error. Um, I, I find it amazing that over the last number of years I have had conversations with folks or read some things where there was a great deal of suspicion over the very idea of applying a text of scripture uh, for some of the reasons you've already mentioned, yeah. uh, Carl. Um, let me ask you this, uh, Carl, what, what's kind of your typical practice in looking for ways to apply a text during the week before you preach it? Well, I think knowledge of the congregation is important. Mm-hmm. Clearly, if I'm, if I'm preaching away from my home church and I don't know the congregation, yeah. it is far more difficult to make applications. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know the congregation, then I consider it quite appropriate, if I know there are certain situations in the congregation, to address them from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not in the game of calling people out by name. Right. I would make the application in such a way that only those to whom it applied 
would know that it was applying to them if I could. If you're talking about the trans allergic community. Trans allergic community, for example, I wouldn't name the mad woman in the attic. I would I would merely (laughs) preach about imaginary allergies. Uh, I I think that knowing your congregation is important. Yeah. Which, you know, in a mega church like yours, Todd, I just don't know how on earth you can competently apply the word at all. But uh, in my congregation where I know people, I'm actually able to apply it to to the problems that I know in the congregation. And I know in your situation you'd rely on feedback from the elders telling you Mm -hmm. what's going on so that you'd be slightly less incompetent than than you might otherwise uh, have been. Now, Now, Carl, is the fact that you know the people in your church, is that the key for keeping it small? I mean, if you <laughs> found that there's a connection there that they know you, <laughs> and therefore the, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Oh, I would say two out of three people who know me mysteriously vanish over, <laughs> over time. Um, the other thing I would say is that because there's such a reaction against legalistic preaching in our circles, mm-hmm. and, and in some ways a right reaction, you sure. don't want preaching to be legalistic, there can be a tendency to try to to make every piece of biblical exposition on a Sunday a piece of gospel exposition. Right. right. The problem, of course, is that we preach through, say, a letter of Paul a section at a time, which means that you'll come to some sections of Paul letters, and really pretty much all you have is practical application. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a a period when I was preaching that I would feel I had to somehow, in a contrived way, get the gospel out of a text where it wasn't obviously there. I I get less worried about that now. I think every sermon should have some kind of reminder of the gospel. Yep. But some sermons, for example, last, last Sunday I preached on Second uh, Corinthians 8, verse uh, 16 and following. There's not a lot of indicative there. Mm-hmm. There's quite mm-hmm. a bit of imperative. Right. And uh, I, I don't feel so guilty anymore about having a more imperative-oriented right. sermon when I'm at that point in the biblical right. text, which is more imperative. Yeah. Do what the text is doing is, is a great rule of thumb. Do what the text is doing. And... If you have a text of scripture that's primarily imperative, then let the sermon be primarily imperative because of our conviction that God uses the preaching of imperatives as part of the way that he sanctifies us. And so uh, to avoid that or to somehow uh, diminish the imperative nature of certain texts is actually doing damage to our people who were called to serve well. And you preach the whole counsel of God over a period of time. Right. There's no way that in any single sermon you can simply preach the whole counsel right. of God. I think we need to realize that it takes time mm-hmm. to work through the counsel yeah. of God. And I, and I still rely a lot on a, a couple of questions that I was taught a long time ago. And maybe most preachers hear, those, hear these. But when I'm approaching a text, I want to ask, what is, this, what is God saying about himself in this text? Yeah. How is he pointing us either directly or indirectly to Jesus? And then is there a promise to believe here and or is there a command to obey here? Yeah. Yeah. You know, those are really simple questions that I was taught a long time ago, and they still serve me really well as I think through preparation for, for teaching and preaching. Yeah. One shepherding thing that our pastor does that I caught on to pretty quickly, and I think it really relates to the application in his sermons, is he asks questions throughout the week while he's talking mm-hmm, to people, mm-hmm. and it's related to the sermon he's yeah. about to preach. Yeah. <laughs> and so he's getting to know not only the people, but um, within the context of what he's preaching, right. he's asking them questions. So Absolutely. I think that's really helpful. Yeah, yeah. for me, it, I, I really strive to have my sermon outline done by Wednesday, just the outline part, so that I can at least start really thinking about throughout the rest of the week, certain points of application. I just try to keep my eyes open yeah. mm-hmm. for stuff. I try to have my sermon done by 
9.59 on a Sunday morning. <laughs> but then I don't have the cast of thousands supporting it, my ministry. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I have five research assistants <laughs> yeah, and that yeah. kind of thing. But, of course, you have an English accent. I do have the English accent, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So you uh, could speak nonsense, and we would still think mirrors. it's kind of cool. Yeah. Some yeah. weeks when I'm hard-pressed, I just stand up and read the phone directory, and nobody notices. <laughs> it's a great it's thing. Phenomenal. Yeah, it's revival. Mm-hmm. So I think the short, the short answer is if you don't preach commitment, if you don't apply the text, then you will get a congregation that is functionally antinomian. Right. I agree. People will mm. do what is right in their own eyes, and that's generally the wrong thing. Right. right. So, well, thanks very much for joining us on Mortification Spin Bully Pulpit. We hope this has been a practical and helpful discussion, and we look forward to being with you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, Bully Pulpit, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold the historical creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. This week we want to give you a free message, The Origin of the Three-Point Sermon by Dennis Pruto. If you want to hear more about how this common preaching style came to be, you need to get this message. Find it at mortificationofspin.org. Join us next week when the gang brings on Tim Challies to talk about a temptation that affects men, women, pastors, and lay people alike. We want to talk about a topic that has come up on a number of occasions in the podcast, and that is the issue of pornography. We live in an age where the accessibility of pornography because of the the opportunities that the internet offers has served to make internet pornography if not the biggest pastoral problem in the church certainly one of the most significant yeah i think if you're a pastor and this hasn't crossed your radar yet then you probably just aren't asking the right questions or you're not talking to your people enough because it really is a very very widespread problem You'll get that and more next time. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to visit mortificationofspin.org for your free download about the origin of the three-point sermon and to find extras from Carl, Amy, and Todd. In the attic, you know, at the church above the roof, there's an attic there. <laughs> Every Sunday we put her up there and we lock it, and then next Sunday we let her back down. Give her some candy on Wednesday. We let her out on special days like this. <laughs> if you go there during the week, you might hear her kind of lumbering around on the uh, so. The lights flicker on and off. The chains jangling. So.